1: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrowcom ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrowcom ACAST.
2: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee and you'll feel it. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: This BOF podcast is brought to you by Cottonworks, the free online resource for the textile and apparel industry. Cottonworks gives you the tools and inspiration you need to create and market outstanding cotton products. Create a free account today at cottonworks.com slash bof.
1: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to a special edition of the BOF podcast. Today, I'm delighted to share an exclusive interview between our editor at large, Tim Blanks, and Dior's Kim Jones, who showed his first collection in London in almost 20 years. Kim and Tim sit down to discuss the significance of showing in London again, the inspiration behind his latest show, and reflect on the contribution of Virgil Abloh to the fashion industry. Here are Tim Blanks and Kim Jones, Inside Fashion.
3: So we're here today to talk to Kim Jones right after his sensational London showing for Dior Men. I don't know how long it is since you've been, since you've shown in London, Uh, Kim, how long is it?
4: Last time was 2003, and then I went off to Paris. It was before they really had any menswear shows in London, I did one in Fashion Week, and I thought about the bigger picture, and I thought it was important to go to Paris because there wasn't the opportunity for buyers to come and things like that. So I went off and went to Paris.
3: So what does coming back
4: represent for you now, coming back like this? It's just, you know, it's really nice to do something which is focused on literature in a city which has got a lot of literature in it, I guess. So, um, you know, it's really weird, actually, because it's probably the first time in a long time that, you know, you finish a show and you go home to your own bed. It's like it's always been a hotel room, so it's kind of, you know, just that thing of being home and having people that don't normally come to shows being able to come and see them. And plus, we're inviting students from St. Martin's and things like that, which are the kids that, you know, I was 20 years ago.
3: Um, Do you think it's changed your approach to to, to the actual show itself?
4: Not so much. It's, you know, the show, whenever we design a show, it's specifically around the collection, so it's really focused on that and then... But, you know, we found
3: a space here which was perfect to show what we wanted to show. I think it's so interesting that you chose Olympia because Olympia, to me, is British fashion in the 80s. It has that sort of resonance, you know, Westwood and Galliano. And Was that on your mind at all? I was very aware of that because of all those fashion yearbooks that I collect, which
4: um, all the shows are at Olympia. Um, It's just done in a very different way. I think it's nice to go somewhere where it feels like home and... You know, things are possible to be seen by people that might have been there as well.
3: And it's down the road too, as you said. Perfect. Now, this show was um, very much um, infused with the spirit of the beat generation. I just wonder why you felt that that this was an appropriate moment to... Because I know how much you love Kerouac and Jack Kerouac, and I know your library has some extremely incredible Kerouac... Artifact.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's kind of the thing of, you know, we'd worked with the artists, then we worked with a musician, and then I thought it was nice to work with something with literature. And so I was thinking about the beats 60 years on and also thinking about the relationship of On the Road to Paris. So I thought that was quite an interesting sort of thing about how Dior was looking at youth and a new movement and Carac was looking at youth and a new movement alongside each other in parallel. So I thought it was interesting to take both of those and work them together.
3: It seems to me very much like, thinking about it, that the Beat Generation and the Bloomsbury Group, who were another fascination of yours, uh, obsession, I should say, of yours, there's, there's kind of a kinship, in a way.
4: Well, they're outsiders that make their lives how they want to lead them and then influence other people to live their lives like that. And th- those kind of people, for me, are powerful. And when you think about fashion, fashion's full of outsiders, and they all join together and make something unique and different.
3: And also a sort of spirit of rebellion, a kind of non-conformity. and Yeah,
4: completely living your life how you want, which I think is a really important message in this day and age where restrictions and rules seem to get tighter and tighter.
3: Now, I know why the Bloomsbury Group meant so much to you, because you grew up in the neighbourhood, yeah. you grew, walking, you know, cycling by the river where Virginia Woolf drowned herself. When did the Beat Generation...
4: On the Road was a Rites of Passage book, I guess. For you? For most people, yeah. For you? Yeah, for my, like, all, you know, I remember one of my friends reading it, and I was like, well, what's that book I need to, you know, and it was the one with Neil Casty and Jack Carrick on the cover with the little turquoise um, writing, and I was like, um, oh, I'm, you know, I picked it up and started reading it. And then I went to San Francisco, and I remember going to the Beat Museum, and then City Lights, and seeing all this stuff, and just discovering counterculture and all those things, and being really fascinated by it, and seeing how much influence it had on modern youth even then, and then also now when we, you know, when the models come and they see, you know, what we're working with, and they go, "I've read that book," and you know, like Andrew was quoting passages from the book. It's like it really resonates with people 60 years on.
3: What's interesting, I think, is about those books uh, and Kerouac and Cassidy, and it's also William Burroughs, it's Paul Bowles, it's um, it's that whole generation of people, pre hippie, mm. pre sixties, kind of. There's a there's a sort of precision about about them in a way that 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 I can see. Uh, I couldn't see you doing doing hippie collections. No, you know? um, um, but but I could. I see the precision of the beat generation being something that would have really appealed to you. Yeah, I mean,
4: I just think, um, you know, it was just the thing of just you know the fact that there was a lot of you know it was prolific, but you know, very precise and you know the thought processes. And you know, what's interesting is I have a letter from um, Jack Carrick to Hal Chase precursoring on the road and describing what he's going to do on the journey and what he's going to write about and sort of you go from that and then I've also got the letter from when it was published from his mother congratulating him on the book so it's kind of like you know and in between that there's all the different books it's like I'm a very completist collector so for me it's the fascination of like you know the structuring all these things together and then putting that together and then looking at it in terms of a collection do you ever see all those, all these obsessions of yours as alter egos in a way? Not so much. It's things I'm just interested in. I mean, I like you know people. I you know I don't know how people perceive me from the outside, but I have so many different kinds of things I'm interested in collect and. Research myself, you know, when I'm not working, it's like I spend a lot of time working on my book collection because it's something that I find extremely interesting and you're learning constantly and looking at the connections between things and usually you find the dots that then make you realise why you like that thing and like the other thing. How do you feel the spirit of the inspiration was reflected in the clothing that you showed? Well, we took the characteristic look of the different people that were in the beat movement, so, and then um, studied their wardrobes, and then we looked at Dior at the time, we also looked at Yves Saint Laurent's references, you know, when he was starting at Dior, and, you know, that, that presence of the Beats in the left bank in Paris would have been quite strong. So just really gathering that all together and then making a road trip out of clothing, almost like it comes out of a suitcase and it's put on in different
3: ways each day. Do you feel that this, I imagine all your collections are very dear to your heart, But Do you feel this one was particularly close to what you're feeling at the moment about everything? I don't know. You
4: know, it's funny because when we do collections, we finished this collection like a month ago. I've done, worked on seven collections since then. So I'm always thinking forward. So I like where it is in terms of the context of where the past collection was and where the collection we're doing next is, that's quite interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's like there's lots of really beautiful details in this. And it's nice, it's a real men's wardrobe and it's slightly different to what we've done before but then the overall view is very, you know, Jack Kerouac, so to speak.
3: I think it's interesting that that this was kind of coming together at the same time as you're working on the Fendi couture. So there's a great dialogue there between, I guess, the sort of lavishness and the, and the kind of, and maybe even the melancholy of Fendi and then the, the oh. beats.
4: We work on five collections simultaneously at a time so there's always a lot going on. So you're thinking about all the collections and how they all interact with each other and actually working for two houses is quite fun because you're thinking, it makes you think about the one house in a different way and the other house in a different way. Plus one house is very much about an archive and the other one is very much about the family. So, you
3: know, it's a very different way of working. But when you say seven, you've worked on seven collections since you worked on this one. Yeah. Each with a distinct yeah. personality. How on earth do you keep all those balls in the air? Uh, Good teams
4: and a good core team and just like having... I'm very good at uh, compartmentalising things. So, you know, when we go into the room, it's like change music and you're looking at the different collection. Even if we look at the same three collections in a day, it's just there's
3: a different mood when we look at each of them. I had a conversation with you recently and you you said that you were interested in that, that this was possibly the last time you had some presiding spirit all the last time for a while that from now on you really wanted to focus on Dior by Dior yeah uh tell me a little bit about that um I was just
4: looking you know it's like will be four years I've been at Dior in March and I like to switch things up I just like to change things it's like I'm always interested in the consumer and the customer and it's like Thinking about what they're going to want and what's going to be interesting for them so I like to flip things up a bit but maybe rather than working with living people we might work with estates of people and different things like that and then there might be a little pop-up collection on its own with someone you know but it's just the main collections I want to really focus on you know the techniques and the beauty of Dior at the
3: beginning I also think, you know, after this time when you've done some incredible collaborations with artists and other creative people, I I would imagine there must come a point where you you just want people to see it's you.
4: Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, it's like, I mean, I think people... In the context, you lead the collections a lot and then the extra layers are added on by everyone else that comes and works. And I think that's the thing that, um, you know, Peter Doig was the, the... one person that sat in every single fitting with us and sketched and drew at the same time and was really, like, that was a real true, 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 pure collaboration in terms of context of fabrication, in terms of
3: deciding a silhouette. Although it's interesting, <laughs> like, with an artist, you have the work, you have the visuals, and you have whatever the the technique that you can... Like you did with Peter Dog, you can duplicate the technique with all your techniques... But with with a writer, you have the words. So, in a way, it's the same. You know, the pictures are painted with words. I love the set.
4: We looked at the scroll that he wrote because it was typed as he was typing, it was sewn together. And it's 80 meters long, so the set's the same. And, you know, and it rolls out like the scroll rolls out at the beginning. And then I got um, Robert Patterson to read passages from On the Road because I spent a lot of time with Rob over the last few years just because of lockdowns and things and I love the way that he can interpret someone so well so I just asked him if he'd do it and I sent him the soundtracking
3: and he was I love the music so. It made me laugh though because was it Truman Capote who who wasn't very partial was it Truman Capote or Gore Vidal who they weren't very partial to Kerouac's writing and they said that's not writing that's typing. Yeah I think that's Truman Capote. It's Truman Capote Yeah. yeah always made me laugh because there was all the typing.
4: It's funny when I don't know, know exactly what year the typewriter has invented, but writers, I've got manuscripts and things, you know, going back to Vita and Virginia... And it's funny how you see the crossover from handwriting to then typing, and then was that when they just got a typewriter? And it's like just thinking, you know, everyone must have been obsessed by it.
3: And it was also supposed to change the way that your brain operated, in the same way that when people switch from typewriters to computers, that apparently, I don't know if that's true or not, but you you think differently, according to the... If if you're writing longhand or whatever, that on the road was a typewritten definitely a typewritten book it's kind of a curious thought but what I love personally about this is your celebration of the
4: word yeah well I mean I think it's really interesting because you know just talking to people and people are really interested in reading again a lot more I think because they had a lot of time in the last few years to sit down and do something just talking to even like Lila and she was like I've been reading this book and getting sort of almost wanting to go back to that and I think it was just nice to Look at something that cycles of things and 60 years on or so this book is still, you know, resonating in
3: younger generations carrying on. But also we just had our our BOF voices um, last week and there was so much talk about the metaverse. Mm. And I, I feel like before the pandemic, all the talk was about artisanship and the handcraft and the human touch and so on. It feels to me like celebrating the word in the way that you did. Yeah. In the show is 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 your kind of statement about about that is your own, you know, you elevating quite a traditional kind of art and craft. I yeah. mean writing is a craft. So. Exactly.
4: that thing craft won't go away. You know, there's education and I think people get up and do it themselves as well. And I think that's the thing that, you know, is really a positive to talk about rather than a negative. And I think it's nice to celebrate these things because There's a thing where it makes sense for me, you know, it's looking at these periods in times and looking, you know, for the house that I work at and what goes along, what's parallel at the point where there's important changes in the house. And, you know, so Christian Dior dying and then Sanon taking over, that time when this book was being made is kind of an interesting point in time in the history of the house and the fact that the book was written in Paris, so it makes sense to me.
3: It reminds me a little bit of the way Karl Lagerfeld managed to find the most extraordinarily kind of oblique connections with Chanel and something like that show in the castle in Scotland because of her connection with Tweed and so on. Is that part of the game for you, that you can remind people of all these textures, all these... Yeah,
4: I mean, it's. it's, I don't know. Things just come in a sort of... When you start doing a little bit of thought process and research, you find out other information, and that's the one thing... When you do collect books, it's like, and you see the links between different writers and different, almost different publishing houses, and it's like, for example, Hogarth Press, you know, publishing Christopher Ishwood, you know, Sally Bowles, Goodbye to Berlin, and things like that, and you think about that, it's a very different era to the era that someone like Virginia Woolf was living in, but they were obviously liked what christopher was writing so then they published it so it's like there's these interesting sort of links of different things that you're interested in history but it doesn't make immediate sense
2: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code
0: LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress.
4: Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
2: With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: I feel an Isherwood collection coming on. No,
4: no, no. (laughs) I think this is, this one, you know, I've got the next year planned out already because we're very organised. And then um, maybe, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Cabaret! (laughs) We'll be back shortly with more from the BOF show right after this break.
0: This BOF podcast is brought to you by Cottonworks, your go-to textile tool for discovering what's possible with cotton. From fabric inspiration to exclusive trend forecasts to digital apparel design tools, cottonworks.com has the resources you need to stay in motion. And with many design decisions going virtual these days, Cottonworks now offers free digital cotton fabric files for use in 3D garment development. Create your free account today at cottonworks.com BOF to gain access.
3: Is your library your pride and joy? Mm, not so much. It's just, uh, I guess, my hobby, isn't it? One of my hobbies. What's the, the thing you're most you're most pleased with that you've found recently?
2: Mm, oh
3: God, I don't know.
4: I'm trying to think. Edith Sitwell's address book, probably.
3: Any surprises? <laughs> I haven't read it yet because I haven't had a chance. But um, that'll be my Christmas reading. Mm, she'll have all Cecil Beaton's details. And Brian Howard. You know, I told you my favourite thing about Edith Sitwell. Um, going to bat for Brian Howard, the only person she ever stuck her neck out for, and he let her down so badly. She thought he was the best poet she'd ever come across. Do you think uh, your attitude to what you do has been changed in any way by the last two years? Um, not so much. I mean, it's
4: you know, it's just thinking about things in terms of timings and just reality. I don't know. It's like I think everyone's had more time to think. Um, But then when you get up and work, you work faster because, you know, it's like we're going through these waves of, like, are you going to be locked in or are you not going to be locked in? It's like, so you're doing as much as possible. You know, I enjoy working. I'm very lucky I can work as much as I can because it's, it's fun.
3: Do you think the function of fashion's changed at all there?
4: I think there's more desire, is from what I see. You know, just I look at what people are buying and seeing... A lot of buying, you know, and people can't live their lives how they used to live them, so they are investing in different areas and fashions. one thing they're buying a lot of. But you
3: seem very conscious of using your platform to illuminate people.
4: Yeah, I think it's nice to. It's when you work with other people, it's because you respect them and you like them and it's something that you want to do. And I think doing things like Kim Skims, for example... Every single girl I know loves that product and loves what Kim does and they admire how hard she works and everything else that she does. So, And it's kind of nice to see how much people have reacted to that in a positive way and just, you know,
3: things where you're working with people you really respect. I think that might have struck people as quite a left-field collaboration for you in light of what you'd been doing. Do you enjoy kind of toying with people's preconceptions?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think people have a lot of preconceptions about people, but they don't really know the people. And it's like when I sat in that meeting and every single girl went quiet, and it's almost like when you're, do you all sometimes and like, in grief of, like, Tebow and Koga off and slip off to watch football, so they go very silent. And, you know, I was like, well, what are you all looking at? You know, and they were like, oh, there's a skin that's dropped. we want to get it. And so I was like, well, if you all love it, let's call Kim and do something. It was like seeing the girls that I work with and how much they love it. It was like, well, that makes complete sense.
3: What do you think's the most uh, misleading pre- preconception about you?
4: I don't know. I don't really think what other people think about me. Obviously, you see comments on Instagram from trolls sometimes, but you know that that's someone... I don't even know where that comes from, but I don't really care. And it's like, but I just think people probably assume certain things about me, but they probably don't know much about me, and I'm kind of a private person, so I'm quite happy with that.
3: I mean, I remember that Louise Wilson said you um, at, when you were at St. Martin's, the best advice she ever gave you was don't don't worry about the others, don't think about the yeah. others. I mean,
4: I think about Louise Wilson a lot, and I'm thinking about her particularly, you know, because I'm showing in London, and I'd love her to be here, and I was, you know, talking to Sarah yesterday, and we're talking about Louise, and it's kind of the thing of just, like, she was just like, don't give a shit about what anyone else thinks, just um, get on with it. But, you know, we were very good friends after St. Martin's, and it's... Um, and she was one of those people that is definitely one of the key people in helping me feel confident enough to do what I do. And you know, her, Lee McQueen, do you, do you blame people like that? All those people were really, you know, there supporting, you know, Mandy Leonard, you know, lots of different people. So it's nice to feel that they're still part of them
3: there. Um, you won an another another big award the other day at London Fashion at the British Fashion Awards. What's your trophy case looking like these days? Mm, I have a cupboard
4: in the house which is twenty two of them, which is very nice. And I
3: was laughing with yeah, I was laughing with Lily. Like, is it a fashion egot? <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. I was just going to say yeah. the Emmy, the Grammy, and the Oscar, and then you're done. Yeah. Oh no, Tony, of course. You know, um, we we lost Virgil Abloh recently, and I'm still processing that. That was just such a shocking thing. But I'm curious, you knew him
4: really well. I knew Virgil from 2007. And, like, him and Kanye used to come and sit in my house and go through piles of old Japanese magazines and then, they, they'd, you know, sleep on my sofas and, you know, and we spent a lot of time around the world together in different cities from Chicago to Tokyo and, you know, I still haven't processed Virgil and it's like I had a day on Friday where I was very, very upset because it's so unfair, you know, people I felt in the industry were particularly unfair about him sometimes and then seeing those people reacting and being all nice, I kind of really don't appreciate because if you're going to just be horrible you might as well just be horrible and just stick to
3: it but that's what i wanted to ask you reading everything that came out afterwards seeing what seeing everything that every everybody said do you get a sense then of how legacies are shaped or misshaped well what virgil did was brilliant and he so you
4: know he gave a voice to people that weren't getting a voice and i think you know when he got viton I was super, super happy because, you know, we were going to do a project at VTOM before, like I'd done with the Supreme one, with Virgil. And, you know, Michael Burke was a huge supporter and the opportunity came and I, I went on to Dior. And I felt that, um, you know, Virgil was the most brilliant, perfect person to do it. And, you know, I think, you know, what he had done with Off-White in such a short amount of time, but also just working, I mean, we'd be sitting in hotel rooms in Tokyo on the floor working with Kanye. And, you know, we'd just be busy, like, working away the whole time, like, 24 hours a day. And just, like, it was really good fun and just, like, the energy and, you know, just thinking that Virgil had kept that up and up and was doing it and doing it and then gone off on his own and did it. And it's kind of like and made this remarkable brand that
3: became so huge so quickly. And he worked in so, across so many different platforms, yes. everything, cars yeah. and planes and everything. I mean, it was just like, you know,
4: he his passion was work. I think a lot of it was really to support his family as well, which I think is a childhood sweetheart who's a lovely woman and just like, you know, all those things. And I think it was just, you know, seeing his legacy will be really really massive like later on it's you know it's it's a really big thing that he did in such a short amount
3: of time but gave it his all You 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 sort of see the urgency of his of his uh, especially the last of his work. Yeah, you see it in a different light now. You kind of see the spur that that he just didn't want to stop because. I mean, I think anyone.
4: I mean, I've spoken to people in that about the situation. I think all of us would feel the same if if we're in
3: that situation. We just want to carry on working. But that that's why the the only kind of parallel I can think think of is you because he had Off White, he had Vuitton, you have Dior, you have Fendi, you 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 also have an absolutely prodigious output do you kind of feel in, you, you're in competition with yourself a little bit that you that you're run well, no, in because... I don't
4: think about anything I just get on with what I do and it's like the thing at the end of the day is like if people critique your work and they don't like it or they do love it. The end of the day for me is like seeing people buy it and that's the most important thing because I like to see people I don't know buying my clothes. It's like a thrill for me. I love it when I see someone I don't know wearing clothes I make. It's like it's the best feeling. And, you know, and it both brands, they sell a lot and, you know, the sales go up all the time. So, you know, that's part of my job and it's like, you know, the one thing, you know, that we look at you know, I love seeing how people style my stuff in different ways as well. It's like, you know, when I see a magazine and a really great stylist has done something really cool with something I've done, you know, that makes me really happy too. Can you see your vision expanding though, like beyond where you are now? I'm not a planner; I just go with the flow. So there's things I'd like to do, but you know, I'm very happy where I am at the moment, and I like doing what I do, and I've got my and I don't know, planned all the things that I'm working on. And it's, it's really fun working with different people and different companies and seeing how things happen. When you say you're not a planner, you mean you're reactive or proactive? I'm reactive to stuff. It's like, you know, if you came up to me and said, would you be interested in doing that? If it was interesting to me, I'd do it. But, you know, I wouldn't plan to go and, go and do it. What excites you most about the world now? Young designers in London particularly hope that we can travel again in the next year. You know, just my work is the thing that excites me. I'm always thrilled when I go in to do fittings and see new stuff and be with the teams of people that I work with that are, you know, the best at what they do. It's always exciting. You know, I'm very in, in a very extremely privileged position and I, I'm, I'm very aware of that. And so, you know, it's like young designers when they come to see me in London and for advice, I always give it to them and I always support them or fund them a bit or whatever I can do. You know, there's lots and lots of designers I've, you know, worked with because I was lucky that I had support when I was young and I think it must be an incredibly tough time now. So it's making sure that talent doesn't disappear.
3: But coming back here, now that you are sort of this truly international designer... Coming back here, do you feel this is these are your roots? This is where you belong in a way? This is it. Yeah, but it's like it's different now.
4: It's like, you know, because Britain's changed, hasn't it? So the way that's panning out for me is a bit of a sort of weird thing. But, you know, I love London. It's my home. It always will be. It's where I feel the most at home and comfortable. And, um, you know, I still look at London the same way I did when I was a student going into town you know at the age of 19 and
3: having that buzz of being there when you step back though how objective can you be about what what you are now
4: if you ask any of my friends i'm the same person i was from when they met me and it's like i have surreal moments where i'm in surreal situations but you know you appreciate it what's the most
3: surreal situation you've been in Ooh.
4: I don't know. I've been in quite a few. I don't really want to name names, but it's like lots of, you know, funny times and good times and just like, you know, people that appreciate you that you've appreciate,
3: you appreciate too. I know something that's always really struck me about you is that even though you're obsessed with, really obsessed, and usually obsessed probably with things like the Bloomsbury Group or like the Beat Generation or um, these wonderful sort of niches from the past... You never, ever strike me as a nostalgic person.
4: I'm not nostalgic. I always look to the future. Once I've done a collection, I tend not to look at it again and I go, I'm just forward. I always like to, you know, it's not nostalgia that brings me to these things. It's an interest of the way of living. And if you look at them all, they're all quite collaborative as well, you know. John Maynard Keynes, Clive Bell, Duncan Grant, Vanessa Bell living in the same house. You know, how the relationship between Neil Custy, Jack Kerouac, Alan Ginsberg, for example, all those things. And it was like, really, there was a lot of cross-pollinisation of work, which was really
3: interesting. And it brings new ideas. And when you look at their worlds, do you think what do you think their world had that our world doesn't have? Mm-hmm. Probably more time.
4: They lived their life at the pace they wanted to live and how they lived. You know, we're a bit more scheduled now.
3: And also the sense that they, there were rules that they could break. You don't get that sense of sort of really taboo. No, well, we live in cities, don't we? You go outside a city, I'm sure those things
4: haven't changed so much. But do you fancy yourself as a rule breaker? In certain ways, but not
3: something that I plan to do. <laughs> <laughs> be, be dragged off in chains screaming. But what, one last thing. I'm really curious after you, you say you, you're always looking forward. You, you've, you've already probably got seven more. Collections to work on in the next three or four days. What do you take away from what you just did? Does anything kind of linger as something that when you're slippers by the fire in your old age, you'll say, oh, that was that moment?
4: Yeah, I mean, I look back in hindsight at things that I think were collections I loved the most. But it's like there's always details in collections I think about constantly and think about ev- evolving forwards, because that's how design happens. So, you know, taking the, this one I particularly like because of the way the mismatching of things and the use of fabrications in it is exciting for me. So it's taking those things forward and thinking how they're going to be in the next collection, which we've already done. So that process has already happened. red.
3: Yeah, exactly. What do you think Jack Kerouac would think if he could see what you did? Probably quite enjoy it. Well, thank you very much, Kim. Uh, Thank you very much for a. uh, You know me, I'm a bookish type.
4: Shy but wild.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I love to see a huge, big fashion spectacle that's based on books. So thank you. A pleasure.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the BOF podcast for our look inside fashion and how it connects to currents in the wider world. If you're not yet a BOF professional member, join today with our 30-day risk-free trial and benefit from exclusive access to agenda-setting analysis you won't find anywhere else. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team.